Welcome to Mosaic, the EDC podcast. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity with EDC staff around the world. I'm your host, Rachel Pascal, Prevention Specialist at EDC. In today's podcast, we'll talk about why it's so important to engage diverse partners when working to prevent substance misuse in our nation's communities. We'll also examine some of the ways we need to think differently and creatively about these partnerships in the context of today's opioid crisis. Joining me today are Dodie Swope and Chuck Clevegard, both seasoned substance misuse prevention specialists at EDC who have worked in states, tribes, and communities across the country. Welcome, Chuck and Dodie. It's so nice to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. So Chuck, let's get started off with you. We all know that partnering is at the core of effective substance misuse prevention. So what's different about partnering to prevent opioid misuse and overdose when we compare it to addressing other substance misuse problems? I think that one of the most key differences with regard to working with partners in a collaborative way with opioid as opposed to another substance, in particular underage drinking, which I think a lot of coalitions are more familiar with, is that you're working with a lot of new partners. For a lot of folks working in different settings as well, you might be working in a health department, you might be working in, in a coalition or an agency, and I think the idea of engaging pharmacies or healthcare, other kinds of professional first responders are very new kinds of partnerships. And I think that, that that requires, again, a sort of a different way of thinking about how to even approach new partners. Who do you need at the table? Who do you not need at the table? All of those kinds of new ways of working. I think in, in the sense of this as being a public health crisis, the need to engage people in, in a variety of different ways is a critical sort of structural change almost. Coalitions have been effective in working in a, in a lot of different ways where you bring people to the table almost from a representative sector kind of, of relationship with partners. And I think this requires us to have a very different relationship. Many of the kinds of sectors or partners we need to collaborate with, whether that be criminal justice or law enforcement or a medical examiner, would likely never come to a coalition meeting, would, would not likely have the time to engage in becoming part of a subcommittee and a coalition. More likely, they need to know more directly what you need from them, and it might be data. It might be to work with you on a protocol or changing policy or regulation in the way that they do their work. And so it's a very different kind of a relationship, and coalition may be a vehicle to coordinate some of that, and working in other kinds of settings may be more conducive to working in these kinds of relationships. So I'm hearing you mention some new partners like healthcare and first responders who may have been addressing opioid overdose for some time now. What does that mean for prevention practitioners who are new to doing this work and are looking to partner? Dodie, do you have something that you'd like to add? Oh, I'd love to jump in. Thanks, Rachel. Great thoughts, Chuck. I do think as we work with these new partners, and particularly the one that comes to mind for me are our healthcare providers, they really have a system of working that's quite different from the sort of community-based coalition that Chuck was describing that was always prevention's home. And it's really important for us to understand those systems and how those folks work together before we go in and start asking them to come to our meetings or participate in our prevention interventions. We really need to learn about the way that those systems work. You know, healthcare, for example, is a very hierarchical kind of system, and you have to find the right 
gatekeeper within a healthcare system to find a way in to have the conversation with the people that you need to have the conversation with. It's not always the first person on your list. Sometimes it really takes some detective work to find who the best link is for prevention efforts. And it's also really important to respect that many of those folks have been very involved in the crisis since its, since its beginning and have a lot of experience and depth of understanding of what's going on that may be very different from our prevention lens. And so oftentimes it's so important to just begin by listening. The other thing is, I think, you know, putting yourself in those environments. I remember when I first did some of this work and Chuck and I worked together in the state of Massachusetts back in the day. One of the things that I found was as a primary preventionist, this whole notion of sort of going into harm reduction and working with people that were actively engaged in substance misuse was a little intimidating for me, quite honestly. And I found a partner in an organization called Cambridge Cares About AIDS, and they were doing a lot of needle exchange and harm reductions interventions. And this lovely person just took me under her wing, let me sit in her waiting room, let me participate in some of the community education activities that they were doing. And I just kind of followed her around for six months. I learned so much, but I couldn't figure out what I had to offer until I really understood the work she was doing first. Rachel, picking up on something Dodie said, I, I like the idea of thinking about gatekeepers, and that terminology may be even new to some of us in the prevention field. I think, for example, the most vivid image of the person who works the desk in the emergency department is triaging who's coming and going and very much a gatekeeper for what goes on in that ED. And I think that you know, working with that person may make a lot of sense. But in fact, what you might discover is that that hospital or that healthcare facility is part of a larger network. And coming in at that level, that person wouldn't, A, have the time or the ability to work with you on emergency department protocol. You may have to think about the right entry level. And in that case, a network might be the right level to engage that partner. So it sounds like it's really important to think through not only the sectors you want to engage with, but also who within those sectors are the right people to seek out. Chuck, what are some strategies for finding and connecting with these new partners? I think one of the most confusing places for prevention folks to start with often is how do I engage people who use drugs or active users and finding that partner, as, as Dodie talked about with Cambridge Cares About AIDS, there are a number of different kinds of organizations in the community that have direct access and who already work with the kinds of populations you want to engage. So thinking about who are those kinds of partners, knowing up front that you want to be able to partner with them for that ability to both understand that population, as Dodie said so well, but also access. So in terms of treatment facilities or syringe exchange, needle exchange programs, as Dodie mentioned, I think are two of the good examples of where to begin or how to start those relationships. So I think the idea of developing relationships and champions where that particular segment or that partner has some uniqueness about their own culture and about the way that they work, that champion can open doors for you. And Dodie, what do you think? What are you seeing as challenges for prevention practitioners who are looking to form new partnerships in this work? I think another thing we really have to be sensitive to as we do this work is that this crisis has been going on for some time, especially in certain parts of the country. It's been going on quite a long time. And everybody that we work with in this work has been impacted by the opioid crisis in one way or another, and sometimes very personally. And so I think there's a sensitivity about trauma and sort of burnout in the work that we need to bring. And I think as preventionists, 
we can bring some of that sort of here's some positive interventions we can do maybe to prevent the harm that you're experiencing on a day-in, day-out kind of basis if you're a first responder. So sometimes we can bring some hope, we can bring some more positive interventions. And I think in one way, we can really help folks think about ways to deepen their interventions beyond simply reversing an overdose. And I think that really helps those first responders feel like there's a more comprehensive plan than simply saving people's life day after day after day. Not that that isn't incredibly important. It's very important. But I think preventionists look at the long, comprehensive comprehensive nature of our work, and I think it can help when you're feeling that burnout or that compassion fatigue to be able to at least look up for a minute and sort of see there are these other pieces that are also happening that are trying to address the crisis that we're in. I've heard that a lot in the communities that I've worked, that folks are really looking for innovative ways to help beyond reversing an overdose. And some of the best work that we're finding, the most innovative work, are from the people closest to the problem. I have a very dear friend who works in a foundation locally, and he said, the people closest to the problem understand it best. I think the idea of being super cognizant of the, the both the compassion fatigue as well as the resource sort of fatigue that, that communities have been facing because we are in in a decade for many parts of the country beyond that even of, of dealing with this issue. I completely agree with Dodie's impression of, of thinking about some partners of being cognizant of not only their fatigue, but what's in it for them? If you repicture that emergency department gatekeeper who maybe has seen the same person two or three times in for a reversal, which kind of took over their emergency department for a period of hours in some ways, and the level of fatigue, what's in it for them clearly is to develop some protocols. So understanding there's some ways that we can help people get to treatment and you can be part of that without it interfering with your day-to-day life and your work. Thanks, Chuck. And what challenges are we as prevention practitioners facing internally in doing this work? I'd love to address that, Rachel. So I think, you know, it is a a shift for us. And we can't forget our roots, you know, and I'm often saying that to folks as as we're working through really making the shift in the way that we do prevention as we address the opioid crisis. At the same time, we want to remember that our core skills, our core lens is still immensely useful in this work. And so I think sometimes prevention folks are challenged to find sort of where do they fit in this work. You know, it seems like a lot of people are working on this crisis and and preventionists are looking for how how do I jump in? It's like, a double dutch jump rope but really remembering sort of what we bring to the table and we're good at bringing people together we're good at helping people hammer out effective partnerships. We're good at doing community outreach and community education and bringing people along and understanding how substance misuse and substance use disorder develops in communities and what can be done to prevent it. So I think I think all those things are really important to remember. I think that the notion of starting with oneself and really both examining in depth as well as challenging our own biases about how we feel about the crisis and about the individuals who are being impacted by it is is a really important aspect of this work. How do I feel about folks who are active users? Do I understand with and come to grips with the fact that these folks have opioid use disorders and, and that in fact they are as much sort of victims of this crisis as they are folks that are struggling with some of the challenges day to day. So I think that that's a huge piece of it for a lot of prevention folks is being willing to challenge your own bias that may be there and admitting that we all have them. I just can't 
resist having the opportunity to also say we can't take our eye off the long-term outcome that we want, which is to prevent substance use from beginning for youth, right? And so I know many preventionists that I speak with around the country say, you know, this is, I know it's really important and we have to save people's lives and I get that, but I don't want us to forget about the 13-year-old that just got introduced to alcohol because if we forget about that primary prevention work, uh-oh, we're, we're going to end up with some other issues further on down the line. So we also have to be good at doing both and, and really working that whole part of the continuum that falls under promotion and prevention. Well, Chuck and Dodie, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts on this topic today. Lots of us to think further about, and I really appreciate both of you taking the time. Thank you. It was great great to talk with you, Chuck, and great to be hosted by you, Rachel. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for tuning in today. For more information on preventing opioid misuse and overdose or EDC's work around the world, please visit our website, edc.org. 